Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Shorewood Stacks. I'm Lizzie Jelly, Virtual Engagement Librarian. And I'm Quinn Brackab, Inclusive Services Librarian. This is the show where we talk to you about what we're reading, listening to, or watching. And today, we are talking about our favorite summer reads. So this is our first episode back for season four after a nice summer vacation. And we are so excited to, one, introduce our new co-host of the podcast, and two, let you know about all of the exciting books that we read this summer. All right, I'll go ahead and share my book first. As everyone who listens to this podcast knows, I love dragons and I love fantasy. So it should be no surprise that I spent my summer reading dragon fantasies. So the book I want to share with y'all today that was my favorite summer read is called Dragonfall by L.R. Lamb. It came out earlier this summer, and it is the first book of an upcoming trilogy called the Dragon Scales Trilogy. And no one is surprised, I cannot stop talking about this book. It is set in a fantasy universe where dragons were like banished to another realm centuries ago to the point where people are questioning whether or not they were even real. But they revere dragons as these gods in the universe now. And a young dragon prince named Evren jumps through a portal on a whim. It shows up and he's like, you know what? I'm going for it. Ends up in the world. And this portal was unintentionally created by Arcady, who is a young thief and an aspiring scholar. As he was like low key committing magical identity theft in this locked tomb, which is so wild. So Evren then becomes stuck in Arcady's realm because this portal was not really supposed to exist or supposed to happen. And his old world just continues dying where all of the other dragons are. And he ends up finding Arcady and the pair have to like reluctantly work together to navigate this weird prophecy that sent Evren to this world and also figure out how in the world he ended up there in the first place because Arcady didn't realize that they opened portals. So <laughs> that was kind of wild. A couple of things that I really, really liked about this book include that it's really full of angst. So if you love an angsty fantasy and like angsty main characters, this book has it in spades. I don't think there's a single character in this book that isn't angsty, to be honest. Um, and it's set in a queer normative fantasy realm, which is really, really interesting because we all know I love queer fantasies. There's some really great themes in this book as well, including questioning your family legacies, as both Arcady reckons with some family stuff in their past and like how their uncle was kind of responsible for like this big magical plague. So that's huge. And Everin is like the last dragon prince and he's reckoning with what that means and this responsibility that's been placed on him to save all of the dragons in the universe. There's also a lot of discussion about whether or not you can change your fate or if it's been decided for you. And my favorite part, because as a romance lover, obviously I was in this for the romantic plot line, if love is worth giving up your freedom for. So this book is really cool because it's really complex in a lot of ways. We get multiple first-person point of views, which is really cool. It's not just Arcady and Everin. There's a couple other characters that make appearances. And all of Everin's chapters are told in this epistolary style. So they're written as letters in the future to Arcady, which is fascinating. Um, because every other character's chapters are told in real time, first person point of view, and without that knowledge that comes with being in the future, for lack of a better term. So we get Everin's reflections along with this as Arcady is experiencing the story in real time. So I thought that was really cool. And there's some really interesting details in this book as well, like the widespread use of sign language among the characters in the world and this really weird magic system where like 
everyone has an identity seal embedded into their skin. And that's the identity fraud that Arcadia was committing in the beginning, swapping out their seal, which is like a huge no-no in this world. I also love that I couldn't predict how this book was going to end. Like, sometimes you can really see it coming through the tropes and stuff. And there's definitely tropes in here, but I did not see that ending coming. That last third of the book, I was like, wait, hold on. I thought I knew where we were headed. I was completely wrong. So if you love a bit of unpredictability, I would definitely recommend this book. I have no idea where book two is going to take us. I love book one, so obviously I'm going to continue reading, but I have no idea what's going to happen in the next installment, which is really exciting for me as a reader. Also, if you were a fan of Fourth Wing, which was huge over the summer, and you want another slightly romantic dragon fantasy, I would definitely recommend you pick this one up. So yeah, that was Dragonfall by L.R. Lamb, my favorite summer read. Sounds intriguing. It was very fun. I love fantasy, so I was very excited to share this one with y'all. I love to hear about dragons. I love to hear about queer fantasy. Well, we talk about a lot of that on this show. So I am very excited to introduce Quinn, our new co-host for season four, and they're going to tell us about their favorite summer read. Hello. Well, I'm going to segue a little bit from queer fantasy to queer sci-fi, because my favorite summer read that I experienced this summer was An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon. This was recommended to me as a book by a Black non-binary author. The story follows Aster, who is a medic on the spaceship Matilda, which left Earth some 300 years ago after a great calamity that made the Earth uninhabitable. And the Matilda is structured like the Antebellum South, with a privileged group of mostly white upper-deckers and an underclass of mostly black lower-deck workers. They have this rigid hierarchy that's supported by religious fanaticism, with any defiance being treated, not only as a defiance of the established social order, but also as an affront against God. And they just have these stories of the rest of the universe outside their spaceship, just these stories of the Earth that was. So our main character, Aster, works as a lower deck sharecropper, but she's also the assistant to the surgeon general on the ship, Theo. And Theo and Aster are both biracial and non-binary, but Theo is the son of the previous ruler, and so he's granted this sort of in-between priestly status as other and queer, which Aster doesn't have ready access to, except in some smaller ways as his assistant. Aster is also coded as intersex and autistic. The story also follows Giselle, who is Aster's childhood friend and adopted sister. And even more so than Aster, Giselle is angry about the injustice on board the Matilda, and she just wants to burn the whole thing to the ground. Fair enough. We love that energy. (laughs) We do. We love Giselle's energy. (laughs) So when the story picks up, the ship is experiencing a mysterious wave of blackouts. Um, The same has happened some 20 years earlier, the year that Aster was born. Coincidentally, Aster's mother also mysteriously died that year supposedly of suicide, though that's called into question. Um, So Aster must attempt to solve the mystery of these blackouts and her mother's death while dodging attacks from the guards, which can be quite brutal, and trying to challenge the injustices as much as she can. She sort of has to balance between these differing perspectives that are presented by her friends. So on the one hand, Theo just wants to save as many people as he can, but he's willing to work within the system to do so and allows a lot of cruelty to continue, which Aster isn't willing to do. But Giselle, on the other hand, she would kill herself and everyone else on board the ship if that would make the injustices stop. Mm. And Aster isn't willing to go that far either. So she has to sort of balance between these two perspectives and figure out what she believes and what she wants to do about the situation that she finds herself in. So what I liked about the book 
This is the kind of book that makes you feel like you're learning a new language, not just because it dabbles in speculative linguistics, but because it gives you such a clear window into the way that Aster sees her world. I really loved all the characters. They're all so beautifully rendered with their own perspectives and quirks and strengths and flaws. There's realistic conflict between them, and you never feel like any of them are just there to be a mouthpiece for the author. They all feel like well-rounded, believable people, and you can understand how they came to be the way that they are. I really loved this sort of tentative relationship that develops between Aster and Theo. It's very tender, and yet it doesn't involve either of them giving up their individuality or their sort of stubborn edges and their firmly held convictions. And I loved Giselle and the way that her arc develops and her defiance. Some warnings, there is a lot of discussion of sexual assault, though most of the graphic details happen off screen. There are several depictions of suicide and racist violence that are pretty explicit. So as always, I'd encourage you to know your own limits and take care of yourself. But overall, this book, though grim at times, is not without defiance and hope. It was beautifully written. The mystery pulled me in and really made me feel like I had to know what happened next. And I really, really enjoyed it. Awesome. That sounds like a great summary. And I've heard really good things about River Solomon as an author, too. I think they've written... A few other books as well. I'm blanking it's on all the names, of course. The but, Deep. Oh, yes. Something yes. about mermaids. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember the cover of that one now. It's really beautiful, really striking. I haven't read that one yet, but it's on my list. Oh, it's on my list, too. Maybe next episode you'll get to hear us talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in. This episode, we are also going to be joined by several other staff members to share their favorite summer reads with us. Up first, we have Kayla, our library intern. Hi. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what was your favorite book that you read this summer? Definitely Slewfoot by Gerald Brom. As it says on its cover, it's a tale of bewitchery. It's also a tale of horror and a tale of a fairy, a fairy tale. And I would call it also a revenge tale. Ooh, very cool. Lots going on here. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit what it's about? Yeah, so the main character, her name is Abitha. She is very soon widowed in the tale, and she finds herself having to tend a farm all by herself, lest she want to fall the servitude to her very brutish brother-in-law, which readers will very soon come to hate. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. And... Well, for one thing, the season is not treating her farm very well, and she needs to reach out to a certain forest spirit in order to help her. And the spirit is called Slewfoot. Ooh. And he is a demon. (laughs) Chaos ensues. Excellent. Now, I remember hearing a little bit about this book, because I think it came out a couple years ago, right? Yeah, it's very new. Okay. Yeah. And it's one that I actually sat on for a really long time because it takes place in 1666. (laughs) Classic. Subliminal messaging there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I'm not usually a fan of period pieces, but this one just blew my mind and really surprised me with how amazing it was. And Brom painted the cover. Oh. And there are also these really gorgeous illustrations of... The main character, the main villain, quote unquote, (laughs) um, and other creatures that are in the book. It's also very good versus evil. What is good? What is evil? 
I think the scariest thing of all is how real it actually is because Brahm not only paints these beautiful illustrations in his book, but he writes a beautiful story of how terribly women were treated in the 1600s. I didn't realize that he painted the cover imagery. That's so cool. It is. He is so hauntingly beautiful with his paintings. Yeah, because we've. I know we've put it on display a couple of times, mm-hmm. and it's got this like really cool kind of like witchy cover to it. So I love to put it up in October. Such a beautiful and spooky cover. Yeah, it really sets the tone for the story for sure. Wow. Well, I'm intrigued. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> I'm gonna have to put it on my list. Yeah, I can't <laughs> recommend this book enough. Awesome. And you you read a lot of horror, right? Kate? That is my genre, yes. Okay. Now, and was that kind of your entry point for finding this one or was this one Yes, I okay. found this through a horror book club online. It was just all the rage for most of last year and a lot of this year. It's still rage, rage, rage. <laughs> which is a coincidence kinda. Because this book will make you feel rage, <laughs> especially if you're a woman. Or, you know, if you're just a human being who has a heart. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kayla. Is there any other things you would like to tell our listeners about Slewfoot or anything else? I just think if you're hesitant on a book, but you have even the slightest interest in it, you should always give it a shot. And you can always put it down later, but you might find your new favorite if you give it a chance. Wise words. Thank you, Quinn. <laughs> I love that advice. I'm a, what's it called? A serial DNF-er. Mm-hmm. Where I always will pick up a book, and if I don't like it, I just won't finish it. But mm-hmm. I keep track of them, because then it doesn't feel like I've given up on it. Right, you it might go back to it. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But no, there are so many good books out there. It's worth picking up one that you're unsure about. Absolutely. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. All right, next up is one of our lovely clerks, Isaac. Tell us, Isaac, what did you read this summer? This summer, I read the first book in Carl of Nosgaard's series, My Struggle. It's A Death in the Family. It's this 450-page autobiographical novel where he details his childhood and adolescence growing up in Norway, sort of in, in the suburbs, and then you know moving to Sweden as like a young adult to go to college and start his writing career, and then it sort of culminates in the second act where he recounts his sort of estranged father dying of alcoholism and returning to his hometown to sort of, you know, pick up the pieces of what his father left behind. The series as a whole, it's sort of this, I think altogether, it's like 3,500 pages, you know, and it's this kind of massive. I think a lot of people characterize it as sort of just this man writing about mundane, everyday kind of things. It sort of has this effect of like, you know, I could write about my own life in great detail and that could make a book. I think where he sort of is unique or has, you know, unique ability is that he's able to write about these things for 100 pages and you just don't get bored of it. Mm. You're just kind of sick of it. It's nice. I've heard people call it sort of like hypnotic where it's like Mm. you sort of just settle into this rhythm of him describing waking up early to his kid asking him for, you know, blueberry milk and and sugar-free muesli. (laughs) And he's just got this sort of tone or affect about it all that's very honest and open and then critical and scrutinizes things in great detail. There's a sort of surface story, and then under all of it, he's deeply contemplative. 
I think the first part I've heard a lot of people don't like as much as the second, kind of the more emotional part about his father. But the first part I found was some of the most interesting in that it's kind of the most mundane. There's the least amount happening. I think he's born in like the late 60s, so he's solidly a Gen Xer. And it, mm-hmm. it shows. It's like he's really concerned with these like independence. What's the like authenticity, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like it kind of reminds me like my parents are Gen Xers. It feels as if, you know, I like read like a like my dance journal from the same time where it's like he's concerned about posers and people who are, you know, <laughs> sort of conformists or whatnot. And it's at one point he tries to start a band and it just kind of falls apart. Everyone tells him that he's not great. And all of his friends just want to play Smoke on the Water. But, <laughs> but he wants to play like the cure, but he doesn't know how to play guitar. And that's 50 pages of the book is like him <laughs> just sort of lamenting and sort of resenting how his ability with the instruments is not where his aspirations are. And I don't know, it's really interesting. I think especially the portions where he talks about his relationship with his dad as a child and the coolness and distance that was there at an early age that would only get worse as he got older. It's some of the most interesting, I think, in that he has a way to shape the mundane through this lens that is his dad dying and his kind of strained relationship. And he's able to sort of, I think, kind of capture it in some really interesting imagery. He's got one section in the beginning where he talks about like his mom would work nights some days of the week and his dad would be the only one home with him and his brother. And the way that his dad prepared dinner was different than the way that the mom prepared dinner where they'd have. I think the dinner they describe is just like a piece of toast with fish and like a mm-hmm. glass of milk. But the mom would take it out of the fridge an hour before they'd eat. So the bread was soft. But the dad didn't have the same kind of attentive detail. So even the dinner is colder and mm-hmm. stiffer when he's with his dad. He spends a lot of time talking about how his dad would kind of ridicule him for not being able to pronounce his R's until his adolescence. And I don't know, some of that is, it's interesting. I think it builds to the second part of the book where he receives word that his dad passes away. He kind of knew that his dad had alcohol problems and he returns to his hometown with his brother. His dad, I think, was living with his grandma up until he died. And they, it's, it's this kind of emotional climax where like they go inside the house and it's like littered with booze bottles. And it's like an episode of Hoarders if it was like mm. two, 300 pages long. This dramatic, sad, slow-paced meditation on all of it. And he sort of feels bad that his dad, with his alcoholism, had been burdening his grandmother. You know, she's like got memory decline. It's almost like a horror movie a little bit. But if a horror movie was told through the lens of this kind of sad Norwegian Gen Xer, you know, like... <laughs> who just was like set free on the page. He's like, I'm going to write and keep writing. And that's what he did. It's not a book that I think is easy to recommend just because it's on the surface. It's very boring and kind of uneventful. There's nothing major really happens, but it's sort of that it is so vulnerable or exposing sort of his deepest and darkest thoughts or even not the deepest thoughts. It's just all of his thoughts. It's very boring at times, but I think I've heard people say, even when it's boring, it's still interesting you know it's still like kind of engaging somehow but yeah i don't know i listened to the audiobook part of the time and i kind of split my time between it the audiobook and the physical book so it was kind of nice to expect to you know if i'm taking boots out my dog out <laughs> i can sort of plug into just this sort of sad norwegian man for you know the little 15 30 minute walk that i'd go on first thing in the morning and it's i don't know yeah it's great i think there are times where it's kind of easy to 
laugh at how mundane some of the descriptions are or how much it kind of gets worked up over something minuscule or small. But I think it's still just kind of a testament to how vulnerable he is as a writer, what he was willing to do with a lot of it. And I guess when it was released, it was kind of a, a big deal in Norway. And then I think when it got translated to English too, it was mm. like a book that was pretty big in certain lit circles at the time. But I don't know. Yeah, I'd say if, if folks are interested in, in any of that, it's worth checking out. I think for the experience alone, it's very different than a lot of what I read. The language is very accessible. Awesome. <laughs> I do want to know, where did you come across this book? How did you decide to read that this summer? I don't know. I, I, I bought a copy of it a couple years ago. I think I maybe heard someone talk about it on like a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like our and, podcast. Yeah, they just said, I think they kind of done just a joke about Oh, my deepest resentments are, yeah, it, it's something like mundane, you know, like my father didn't know how to work a microwave, you know, so none of our food was warm from the ages of four through eight, like little things like that. I think they were kind of laughing about it. So I think I approached it expecting something that was going to be a little comic or mm. something that, you know, is, is very serious, but it's one that you can kind of joke about, you know, there's some levity, you know, just in the experience of reading it or whatnot. But I don't know, this summer I was like, I've got a lot of time and I think I was kind of going through those hoopla charges pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. I was like, I think I need to take on something pretty big and bulky. It was like the last of the month or whatever. And I think it was just partway through July. And I was like, well, this should take me some time, you know, and I <laughs> should limit myself to this. Yeah, I don't know, because I wanted to get around to it for a while. But yeah, I'm happy I did. I don't know if I'll get to the other books in the series, but maybe someday, maybe next summer. Who knows? <laughs> Well, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Isaac. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I hope um, our podcast encourages some of our listeners to check it out as well. If they want, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll spread the love of the sad Norwegian man. Yeah, I mean, there are books that are more entertaining and interesting, but if you're looking for, if you got like a slow weekend, you know, and you're just looking for something that, I don't know. It's kind of slow. The audiobook is really nice too. Like the reader does a, a great job. He's got a very kind of calming and soothing voice. And it's something where it's like, I feel like even if I lost focus, there, I could reliably get back into it just because it's like he's still talking about blueberry milk and muesli and his daughter, you know, kind of being a tyrant. I don't know. <laughs> it's just easy to lose your place, but jump right back in. I don't know. But it's good. It's fun. I love that. We'll check it out in physical copy or as the audiobook on Hoopla. Next up, we're going to be joined by library clerk, Rosa, who is going to share her favorite book that she read this summer. Hello, everyone. Awesome. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy to have you. All right, so tell us about your favorite book. So my favorite book that I read this summer is called Black Holes, The Key to Understanding the Universe. And this book absolutely blew my mind. I've always been a space enthusiast, love to frequent planetariums and that kind of thing, but I hadn't read a full book on black holes yet. So this was very life-changing for me. Awesome. Yeah. And I actually, I was doing some Googling this morning because I realized I wanted to remember the author's name, which is Brian Cox, by the way. He's British, and not only is he a physicist, but he is also a keyboardist of a popular 90s pop band called Dream, where there's a colon between the D and the Ream. (laughs) 
and <laughs> there's some pretty intensely cool videos on YouTube from the 90s if you're interested in checking them out. So just throwing that out as a fun fact. Yeah, we, we love a multi-talented <laughs> author. I yeah. mean, you know, from 90s synth pop to Black Hole Scholar. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was helpful as part of his background because he made the book incredibly accessible. Awesome. And so it was something that you didn't have to have like this big background knowledge of science and all of that. It was something that anyone could pick up and be able to figure out what he's trying to say. There was a lot of diagrams, which was really helpful for me because a lot of times as you're reading something, you're just like, it's hard to picture how something works without that visual. And so that was really helpful for me. And yeah, it's just overall very mind-blowing and has <laughs> <laughs> definitely changed the way that I think about life and existence and even just things like perspective mm -hmm. because every perspective is completely different so like when we think of time like um, if we all three of us were to witness the same event from different angles we would experience it at different time intervals. Oh. And so like time is all relative. It's all based on the perspective of the observer. And so it's something that we've of course created, you know, this idea of like time is this solid function that we all have to like adhere to. But it's it's not really that. It's kind of <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of very different and it's is something that is really flexible like for instance within a black hole time does not exist and so if you are if you happen to be pulled into a black hole <laughs> which hopefully this doesn't happen for you so hopefully you're the person okay here's a better example hopefully you're the person who's standing a safe distance mm -hmm. or floating a safe distance rather from a black hole you would be able to see anything that's being sucked into that black hole would be frozen in time on the event horizon. Well, it would look like it's frozen mm. in time. Really, it's going into the black hole. Every single particle is being spaghettified. <laughs> is that a technical well, yes, term? <laughs> that is a technical term, which I was very excited to learn. I love that. <laughs> and yeah, so they're actually being like completely pulled apart and going into this like nothingness of singularity um, but what we would see as an observer is that they're like frozen at that point in the event horizon so if you were to stand a safe distance from the black hole you could see everything that has ever been pulled into that black hole because oh, it would be like kind of lined up along the event horizon like all the planets all the everything be pretty crowded I imagine wow that is my this hurts my brain a little yeah. bit to think about to be honest but I love that you mentioned that the text was really accessible mm -hmm. um that's great and the diagrams too that sounds really helpful because I as our listeners know I often struggle with nonfiction because it just bogs me down so I love the idea of it being broken up with some kind of helpful diagrams to really visualize these kind of complicated concepts but now I know if I'm ever going to get sucked into a black hole, I should strike a cool pose because yeah. I'm going to be stuck that way to everyone on the outside. 
<laughs> yeah, if if people take one thing away from that, <laughs> from this, I hope that they that they strike a cool pose as yes. they're going into a black hole. Life, <laughs> Life lessons. Yeah, the more we know. Well, awesome. Where did you come across this book, Rosa? Well, I actually found it uh, shelving it at our library, mm-hmm. and so wow. at the front desk we get to shelve the new nonfiction books. And so it came up as a book that I was bringing to the shelf, and I thought, wow, this looks incredible. Uh, So I was very happy that I happened to be working at the library in order to be (laughs) introduced to this book. Um, And yeah, it's something that, like you were saying, a lot of people have had that same kind of reaction when I tell them that I'm reading the book Mm -hmm. and I'm excited about the book. It's just like, whoa, that feels like a lot. Or I've even had people say um, that it would be like terrifying for them Mm. to kind of learn that kind of information. And I actually had a very different response where when I was reading it, it was like, whoa, like this is not terrifying. This is magical. This is incredible because everything that's happening out in space, all of these things that feel so far removed from us, like it's all of the same materials that we're made up of. And, you know, a lot of the same like functions and physics and things. And so like we are somehow alive, you know, in this (laughs) vast universe that had to have a very particular way of developing in order for life or anything to even be possible. Um, And then, like, speaking of possibility, (laughs) actually. (laughs) um, So that was something that I found really cool um, in that when we think of time, time is something that is infinite. And so there's actually, like, infinite possibilities to time, just like we have infinite time and space. infinite space-time, rather, um, we then can know that a place exists in space-time for everything that has ever happened and everything that will ever happen. But this doesn't mean that things are predetermined either, because there is like an infinite amount of possibilities. And so when we think about our day-to-day lives, like every choice that we have in our day-to-day lives is like a, is an action, um, is an event as the space-time terms would go. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, with each event, you are really like creating the collective timeline with every choice that you're making. It's deciding where we're all going in space-time together. And so it's really kind of cool because sometimes people think of like these big grand things and it makes them feel small and insignificant, but really we are significant and we're all forming what happens with our universe. That is kind of magical when you say it that (laughs) way. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Um, And it's like, it's also... um, just really beautiful that it's such a collective process that we can all be part of and yeah I think it it makes me really excited to think about the fact that anything really is possible for us if we 
make the choices to make it happen. That's lovely. Yeah. yeah. That is the most, like, uplifting take on black holes I've ever heard. I got to <laughs> check this book out now. <laughs> this sounds awesome. I'd love for you to check it out so we can talk you even more depth about it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, if you want to read this book and talk about black holes, definitely seek out Rosa. It sounds like she's, yes, she really loves it. That was great. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I love learning about the universe. Thanks for sharing a little bit of mind bending space with us. <laughs> of course. Happy to do it. As always, if you have any questions or comments for your hosts, you can email us at shorewood at mcfls.org. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening and be well. Shorewood Stacks is produced by Lizzie Jelly and Quinn Brackab for the Shorewood Public Library. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. The song is called Ice Flow and can be found on incompetech.com.